Our reading this Sunday is in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, as we continue our series uh, through the book of Romans. We've thought in the first three chapters about how um, all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There are none that seek after God. And Paul has begun to show us the hope that we have despite that reality that we've all sinned and, and fallen short of God's glory, that God doesn't owe us anything, certainly doesn't owe us salvation and freedom from that sin. And yet, because of his goodness, he has shown us a way uh, to be free from uh, the, the weight of sin and from punishment from it. And so we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, just now. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does script, the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The, prop, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this Sunday morning. If I could give you one thing that would make you feel truly blessed, truly content, truly happy or joy-filled, what would it be? Would it be an end to lockdown. That's got to be pretty high on everyone's list at the moment when you see the newspapers and uh, the great either joy that lockdown might be coming to an end this summer or the anguish that things aren't quite unfolding as we had hoped and perhaps summer won't bring the complete end to lockdown that we had desired. Will it be time with your family and friends? That's one thing that we've missed almost more than anything else over this last year isn't it? That we haven't been able to, to be with our loved ones, not just to, to see them and to speak to them, but to, to touch them and hug one another and share time in one another's presence. Maybe it would be a space at the Easter Sunday service in the building, which I would remind you to encourage to book right now if you, uh, if you possibly can. Maybe that's the thing that, that would make you feel truly blessed. We haven't been able to all sit in one room together over the last year and worship 
as we're used to, with singing and with corporate prayer and the sharing of communion and, and, and the preaching of God's Word, we've been able to do it in such a reduced capacity, we've really felt that the loss of that, maybe having that would make us feel truly blessed and joy-filled. Maybe it would be a clean bill of health, freedom from the fear of COVID or, or simply another health problem that we've experienced. Maybe it would be financial security, another problem that COVID has brought is this sort of ticking time bomb, as it were, of um, firms that will, once lockdown and furlough comes to an end, simply not be able to carry on because uh, the loss of business has so damaged their finances. Maybe having job security and financial security that goes with it uh, would be the thing that would bring us the most joy. These are all good and right things. These are all perfectly fine things to hope for, and they will certainly, when we eventually do have them, we will certainly feel joy and satisfaction and blessedness for having them. But the problem is, we know deep down, ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, that these things won't ultimately do it. It might for a while, maybe for a few hours or a few days or weeks or months, but, but they don't last Were we perfectly happy and joy-filled before lockdown began? No. Were we perfectly happy and joy-filled when our health was in tip-top condition? Did we find any joy in that? No. We didn't even realize it was a thing until it was taken away or until the threat of COVID came into our lives and we realized how how blessed we were to, to be in good health and free from the fear of any serious illness. Were we truly joy-filled at the thought of coming to church before the pandemic hit? Be honest. Because for all that we enjoy church, and it's a great blessing, and, and it's wonderful to be together with our friends and our, our Christian family, was it a source of deep, satisfying joy to us to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and come down to the service? Well, it might have been from time to time, but probably not every Sunday, as great as it is to be together. Difficult times give us fresh perspective. I know that. We will be changed come the end of lockdown as a result of our experiences. We will treasure simple things more as a result of what we've gone through for a time. But over time, they will all fade. These things aren't sufficient in and of themselves to sustain joy and blessedness in us because familiarity breeds contempt. We get tired of these things. We find them commonplace, ordinary, and what is ordinary is never enough to sustain our happiness. So what are we to do? Do we just go through life in a sort of state of blank neutrality, that we're sort of neither happy nor sad, we're just plodding along from one day to the next? Should we, like Raphael Yuba, who's a consultant and senior lecturer in old age psychiatry at King's College in London, just conclude after many years of studying the um, psychiatry of men and women that humans just aren't designed to be happy? We should give up on happiness as a pursuit because it's just simply not something we were made to have. In his view, in evolutionary terms, we're simply just supposed to exist and ensure the next generation exists. And anything beyond that is a bonus. So we should just be content with that. Sounds pretty desperate. It sounds 
a little bit sad. It sounds a little bit empty and meaningless because in the grand sweep of eternity, what is the point in ensuring the next generation exists? From an evolutionary, from an atheistic standpoint, it doesn't matter if the next generation ultimately exists because in a hundred billion years, the universe will just fold in on itself and pop out of existence and all things will have been meaningless and empty. So who cares about the next generation? Who cares about the future of society and our species? Because in the final analysis, it will all have been worthless and empty and meaningless. So why bother? We should just give up on happiness and just content ourselves with mere existence. I don't think anyone, however fiercely they put forward that view, I don't think anyone actually believes it. I think we are, as a species, wired to be, I don't want to say happy, because I think happy is too small a thing. I think we are wired to be joy-filled. I think we are wired to be truly blessed and to experience the fullness of that blessedness each and every day. But the problem we have is knowing how are we supposed to have that life? How does it come? If not through these things I've mentioned, an end of lockdown, family, friends, a meaningful job, whatever it might be. Well, in our passage in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12 this morning, Paul is going to talk about a number of different things. And what he's going to talk about more than anything else is our faith. And we find faith that is disparaged by so many people, almost certainly Raphael Yuba and uh, others like Richard Dawkins, who in an article uh, this past week talked about how his faith is ultimately in science. Science, to paraphrase him, is the God who brings us the greatest hope, but does not necessarily bring the greatest joy and, and satisfaction and fulfillment. Faith is the thing that makes the most of our lives, is that the means by which the greatest blessing comes to us. Paul says ultimately in this passage that faith is the means by which we are truly satisfied, joy-filled, blessed in this life. Our problem ultimately is that we don't think about our lives in the right way. And if we have our view of life, our lives realigned to the way God sees our lives, as Paul is going to unfold in Romans 4, 1 through 12, then we will understand the way we are supposed to go and the joy that we are supposed to experience, the blessing of God in all its fullness. John Piper puts it well when he says, um, the problem we have is that we think happiness in this life is about making much of ourselves. If I can just be built up enough, if I can receive enough things, if I can be made much of, then I will be truly happy and content all the days of our lives. And this is why we pursue things like wealth and fame and stability and all of these things, because they build us up, they make much of us, and we think that in that we will be truly happy. But he says it's interesting. We actually don't really believe this deep down. And it's revealed by our desire to go and see other things, to be amazed by the world around us. So when we go and uh, we look at, in his example, the Grand Canyon or the, the French Alps, and we look at the splendor and the majesty, they take our breath away. We cannot believe the, the scale, the depth, the beauty, the, the, the intricacy of the created world. 
It's astonishing to us. And he says, when we find joy, when we find awe, when we find um, blessedness, happiness in these things, we are seeing something out with ourselves. We do not go, Piper says, to the Alps to be built up, to be made much of. We go to see something that is truly um, magnificent. We, we go to marvel in the splendor of something bigger and greater and more amazing than we feel that we are. And it's in that that true joy is experienced, that true meaning is found in the marveling at the splendor of one or something greater than we are. He goes on to say the greatest splendor we can behold is our God who loves us by sending his Son to die in our place. And though we were sinners, Christ came, the perfect Son of God, and took our sin upon himself that we might be free from the penalty of our sin, death. And we might be liberated to live knowing the God who made us and moment by moment sustains us. When our faith is grounded in him and that work, we behold the greatest splendor in the universe that the God of all creation would stoop down and lift us who are so unworthy up and give us this amazing inheritance. And in that, when we have that faith, when we come to that realization and live our lives in light of it, then are we truly blessed beyond anything we will ever find in this life. And it gives rise to praise and worship and thanksgiving and adoration because we simply cannot believe how great a God we have. He goes way beyond the Grand Canyon or the Alps or Everest or the rainforests or the depths of the ocean with all of the myriad life forms that exist there. All of these things pale into insignificance compared to the splendor of a God who is everywhere, knows all things, was before time, and will be after it is finished. That God stooping down into creation and lifting us up, liberating us from the punishment we so richly deserve. And Paul outlines that reality for us in Romans 4. He says in the first uh, three verses, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's drawing on the theme he's had in the previous three chapters where he's outlined that both Jews and Gentiles are sinners, have fallen short of the glory of God, and are all in need of salvation. And he's begun to reveal to us in these opening chapters of Romans that both Jews and Gentiles can be saved by Christ. Although Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, he comes to save not Jews only, but people from every tribe and nation and language. And he's begun to, to um, consider from a Jewish perspective some of the feelings that his own people are going to have about that. That there's no point in being Jewish. It was all just a pointless waste of time for hundreds, thousands of years. Surely they should have just been Gentiles the whole while. Never bothered with the old covenant and with all of its laws and stipulations if the Savior would just come and save them all anyway. And Paul has said, no, that's not true. There was great value and purpose and meaning in having the Old Covenant, having the, the Scriptures, and having God reveal Himself to the Jewish people that they might be blessed, but might be a light to the nations, might be the means by which God tells them this great truth. 
And now he comes to Abraham and wants to outline the fact that although there is great purpose and significance to um, the Jewish family of God under the old covenant, that cannot lead to exclusivity in the new, that it's only for them. And he draws on Abraham, the ultimate forefather. There is no one who you could point to in the Old Testament that symbolizes that the foundation of the Jewish faith, the Hebrew people, than Abraham himself. And he says, what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? According to the works that he might have done to have justified himself before God, as the Jews of Paul's day believed they were doing by being obedient to the old covenant laws. If they just were obedient enough, then they would justify salvation. They would earn salvation. It would come by the grace of God, but in response to their obedience to the law. And Paul says here, is that how it worked for Abraham? Because if it didn't work that way for Abraham, then it doesn't really work that way for you, does it? And he says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says Abraham did many great things. He had many great works associated with his name. He was faithful. He failed many times, but he was faithful. He um, lived a life that was in line with what God wanted him to do, although he struggled and, and failed along the way. And through him, the promises of God began to be delivered. No Jew would deny that. If anyone has a grounds for, uh, for saying, I have been faithful before God and therefore am worthy of salvation, it's Abraham. But Paul says it's just not like that, is it? Abraham can't boast before God. Well, how small and, uh, and petty are Abraham's achievements before a completely holy and perfect God who can have anything he wants? A- Abraham could never earn salvation from such a God. All of Abraham's works weren't the ground of his righteousness, his right standing before God. He says in verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't on the basis of an earned salvation that God uh, drew Abraham to himself and made him his own. It was as a result of Abraham simply placing his faith in God. Paul tells us the blessing of Abraham comes apart from Abraham's works. It comes because Abraham believed in God, placed his faith that God would liberate him, forgive him, free him from sin, and carry him through all the days of his life. And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as if he had obeyed God's law. We remember God hasn't actually given his law at this point. Moses hasn't come and delivered the law to the people. But it is as if Abraham has been completely obedient to the law because he placed his faith in God. He trusted that God might be enough to forgive him for his sins. And so God justified Abraham. And so Paul says to the people of his day, There are many good things that we do. We all do good things. They're not good enough, though, to save us, because we always do more bad things than good. And even if we didn't, these things are so small in the face of an infinite and holy God who is infinitely offended by our sins, as small as we may feel they are. And so Paul says that for all that we may do good things— 
They will never be enough to justify us before a holy God. And so it doesn't matter how great we are. We could be as great as Abraham, and it wouldn't be enough. Instead, God will come to us precisely because we are unworthy. We'll pick us up. We'll redeem us. We'll carry us all the way through our lives, forgiving our sins each and every day, and carry us on into His presence in eternity. And all this is realized when we place our faith in Him. Salvation comes by faith alone, ultimately in Christ alone as our Savior, the one who has paid for all our sins, who has paid for the sins of Abraham, though Abraham couldn't see that it would be Christ in the the first century AD that would um, come along and be the, uh, the one in whom all our sins are forgiven. Abraham placed his faith that God would forgive his sins, and that was borne out in the coming of Christ in his sacrifice and in his resurrection uh, in our place. When we behold all that God has done for us in Jesus, when that is everything to us, when we put our faith, our confidence in him, when that fills our lives and defines who we are, we find that we are truly blessed. We are counted as righteous, as if we have upheld the law perfectly as Jesus did as if our sins are no longer in existence, because they're not. Christ has paid for them all. And when we know that blessedness, that is blessing beyond measure, nothing can take that away. So we find true joy in our lives because the blessing of God in forgiveness can't be interrupted by coronavirus, can't be taken away through financial troubles or the loss of a job or the death of a family member or because of the loss of our freedoms or our money because they were never the source of our joy, of our blessedness in the beginning. They were great things to have. But the ground of our joy was in knowing freedom from sin. And that comes by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. That is how we are counted righteous, by placing our faith in God. The greatest blessing that we have is freedom from our sins, Paul goes on to say. So we know God and life with Him by placing our faith in Him that He will forgive us our sins as we confess them to Him and ask to be forgiven, and we are then freed from our sins. Think about our hopes for the future, the things that we will feel blessed by when we receive them. An end to COVID and lockdown and all the uncertainty and worry and anxiety that goes along with all of that. Having gone through the pain and then emerged out the other side into freedom and a hopeful future and everything else, that will be a great source of blessing and joy to us because of what we've experienced. And that's true. There's no denying that. But how much greater a joy and blessing will we experience when we emerge out the other side, are liberated from sin and death itself, which is a far greater weight upon us. Coronavirus is temporary. The effects of it will be fleeting on our society and so on. And it it might take a while, years for us to overcome the effects this last year have had, but it will end one day. The effect of sin is death and destruction for eternity. There will be no end to the consequence of sin and death for us as individuals. And so, when we are liberated from that 
terrible and terrifying future eternity, how much greater will our joy, our blessedness be in our experience? Infinite, because the consequences are infinite. We might think about escaping sin as being getting our ticket punched for heaven and so we can get to go and experience the the joys of heaven. And although that is part of the blessing we receive from Christ, that getting our ticket punched for heaven is not quite how it works, and we're going to go on and explore that in just a few moments. But we recognize that as a good thing for us to have as opposed to everlasting destruction in hell because we realize how hard and difficult our lives have been in so many ways here and now. And in eternity, we want to be liberated from that. We don't want to be buried under a mountain of that forever. We want to flee that at all costs. We recognize the infinite value of freedom from sin and death and misery and pain and suffering and sickness and all of those things. We long for that. That's why as a society we are so committed to healthcare and to medical research. We're desperate to make our lives longer because we're so frightened of death. We're so frightened of being sick. We're terrified of Alzheimer's and dementia and the diminishing of our mind because this is all we've got in our society, so we're told. This is all we have to hope for, and so we will do anything to escape that. And yet there is no escape. There is no end to those things if all we have is this life. Instead, we have our focus on something far greater. And when we receive that, we find that our joy is almost infinite and undiminished because we will always be free from the horrors of everlasting destruction. We will always be able to enjoy the blessings and the glory of heaven, an eternity spent with God, working and laboring and uh, worshiping him, finding true meaning and value and purpose because of the glory we will give to him for all eternity. The greatest blessing is freedom from our sin that secures that future. And Paul unpacks that again in 4 through to 8. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, this faith is counted as righteousness. He's basically saying when we labor hard for something, it's not this great and wonderful gift. It's earned. We deserve it. But he's already said it doesn't matter how much we work, we can never deserve so great a reward as the blessed hope of eternity with God. Freedom from our sins. Because there will always be more sins that we commit that will bring us straight back down again. In fact, that will be so many, we will never be elevated to that position of the blessed hope in the first place. And so Paul says, the one who does not work but believe in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We place all our faith in Christ who has been perfectly obedient to the law and who has died and taken our sins upon himself because in that our sins are truly paid for and true liberation finally comes. And it is only through faith that that can come because we can't ever do enough to earn it. The price is infinite and we are not enough to pay an infinite price. And Paul goes on to illuminate that with not Uh, the first great hero of the Hebrew family, Abraham, but the words of the second great hero of the Hebrew family, David. This is interestingly enough what Matthew draws on when he um, displays for us uh, Jesus' family 
list at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus' genealogy, he picks particularly Abraham as the founder of their family, and then David, the greatest king they ever had, as being the two significant markers that come before Jesus. And so it is with Paul. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Ultimate joy is found in freedom from sin because it aligns us with the the life God has designed us to have and the eternity that God has in store for us when we live that life. The problem is we can't have it because sin keeps us pointed in a different direction, always serving ourselves, never serving the God who made us. Going back to Piper's hope of uh, our joy being grounded in the one who is um, greater than us, the greater splendor of God. And so Paul says, quoting David, that we are truly blessed when we are liberated from the old way of death to the new way of life. But the problem is, and almost every Jewish reader reading this will have in mind God speaking through um, Moses in Exodus, saying that there is none who God will not count their sin against them. Anyone who has sinned will have their sins counted against them. There is no escaping that. There must be payment made. And the reason there is no contradiction between Moses and David is because David is hoping in one that will take that sin, who will actually pay that price. And ultimately, we know that hope is in Christ. Christ is the one who actually dies a death for our sins, actually pays the price, removes them from us, makes us free. We are not placing our faith in a God who may or may not forgive us, that we hope that we can just please him enough that he'll be willing to say, I'll let you off with the rest. That's not our hope, because that's no hope at all. That would be an unjust God, and Paul has ruled out the possibility of God being unjust. He's already said in chapter 3 that because of the death of Jesus on our behalf, God becomes just and the justifier of many. God receives the full penalty for sin in Jesus. All of his wrath is expended for sin. God is just. He judges sin, and yet he justifies sinners by taking their sin and placing them on Jesus. And that is true for you and true for me. And the blessed person is the one who doesn't have the biggest car, the most money, the most beautiful-looking life and family and whatever else it might be. It is the one who knows freedom from sin that makes a mockery of all of that. It makes all of those things meaningless and worthless because one day they will all be gone and you will be left with nothing but the penalty for your sin. And that is the worst deal of all time. This is why Jesus says that a man is truly blessed when he realizes that that having all the wealth of this world at the price of his soul is not worth having. Blessed is the man who ultimately realizes that forfeiting the treasures of this life and having forgiveness is the true way of life. The greatest blessing is freedom from our sin. And we find, lastly, that freedom from our sin is a blessing that anyone can receive. 
This is Paul's whole point. He's pointed out how wonderful it is to know freedom from sin, what that ultimately means for each one of us, and he has sought to get across to the church that none of the believers in Rome are exempt from that. It doesn't matter that you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are Roman or Syrian or Egyptian or uh, an Israelite, it makes no difference. It is open to all. We can all be truly blessed. He goes from verse 9 through to 12, pointing out that this blessing is not only for the circumcised, but also for the uncircumcised, because Abraham received this blessing before he was circumcised. His faith came first, and then as a result of his faith, he received the covenant sign of circumcision being set apart for God to serve him in light of what God had already done for him. The covenant with Abraham is made, and then Abraham is circumcised as a sign that this is the covenant that he will now live his light in light of, his life in light of from that point on. And Paul says, because of that, we are able to identify ourselves with Abraham, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. The purpose of all of this is to make Abraham your father. All the promises of God given to Abraham to become your promises if you are in him, if you have the faith that Abraham has. The faith in whom? In Abraham? No. The faith in the law? No. Faith in God as your Savior. So it makes no difference where you're from. It makes no difference how terrible a life you had. It makes no difference how much you struggle now to know God and love him and worship him. These promises to Abraham of um, being God's people now and into eternity, being part of a people beyond counting, being a, a, a people who will have a place of rest that will never be taken away, that will be a place of true blessedness and joy and happiness and contentment and fulfillment, a people who have a God who loves them and whom they love with complete abandon and joy. All of those promises can be given to us if we place our faith in Christ. Now, Paul points out throughout this passage, and he'll go on in the next section of Romans 4 to make it very clear, he's not saying there is no place then for good works. Who cares? Just have faith in Christ and then just go and live a sinless and debauched life. Paul makes it very clear from this that Abraham did good works, and that was a good thing. He was faithful, and that was a good thing. Because although we are saved by faith alone, faith never, ever comes alone. It manifests itself in our lives as good works. This is why Paul is in complete agreement with James when James says, if you show me faith that you're claiming that has no good works, I'll show you dead faith. You cannot have faith apart from good works because good works characterize true faith. So all people can be free from sin. It is a blessing that all people can receive. And when we receive it, we are transformed and begin to live lives that are marked by faith. Lives of good works, of service, of worship, of gratitude, of praise, of thanksgiving, of love, of the sort of steadfast love that we talked about right back at the beginning of our service together. The steadfast love of the Lord begins to characterize our lives. Faith is the ground of the greatest blessing that you or I can ever experience in this life and the life to come. It is the one thing that endures past the loss of all things, including our lives themselves. 
It is much mocked, it is much maligned, it is pictured as being a crutch for the weak, to which we must say it's way beyond a crutch. It's a wheelchair that carries us through this life because it can never be taken away. Our faith is in one who has already accomplished this victory over sin and death for us. It is the greatest blessing that we can ever have. The greatest blessing we can ever have is freedom from our sin, liberation from that which kept us chained in darkness and in death, and which in an ongoing way stops us living the sort of life that will manifest this great blessing. We're liberated from that through Christ's death. He forgives us, he makes us right, righteous before God, and he makes us able then to go and do good works that are part and parcel of this blessed new life and hope that we have so that the world begins to be transformed and witnessed to as to just what kind of God this is and what kind of salvation we have and what kind of people we now are. And ultimately, freedom from our sin is a blessing that anyone can receive. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female makes not one bit of difference. And so we can all be together and worship and glorify God regardless of where we've come from. You can know that freedom, that blessing today if you will place your faith in the one who has already accomplished the victory over sin and death for you on your behalf. What can I give you that would make you truly blessed today? It's not an end to lockdown. It's not freedom from the fear of COVID. It's not money. It's not family. It's not job security. It's not any of those things. They're great, but they can all be taken away. The greatest blessing that I can point you to today that will result in you overflowing with joy every single day, regardless of the circumstances you face, is the blessing of faith itself. Trust in Christ when he says he has paid for your sins. Ask for his forgiveness. Confess your sins to him. Lay yourself before him and ask that he might lift you up and give you new life and hope and joy, and he will. It is for all who will believe. And in this way, we can face uncertain days because of all our Savior has done for us. Let's go into this week in light of our saving faith given as a gift, that we might enjoy it richly and life with God forevermore. Amen.